0: Hey, Willingdon Church family and all who join us. Happy Mother's Day. I'm Ray, one of the pastors at Willingdon. As I said in the weekly update, my mother passed away seven months ago on October 11th of last year. So today, I have with me a teacup from her china collection. Is there a mug or teacup that reminds you of your mother? What did my mother value my mother valued speaking the truth. One morning, I was tempted by the mint candies in her purse, so I, I took one. When she discovered that I had taken one without asking, she confronted me about it. I lied about it. Then she disciplined me for lying. And the discipline is still engraved in my memory. Why? Because it hurt. Speaking the truth, being a person of integrity, were really important for my mother. Humility was also a high value. My brothers and I were not to walk in pride, think we were better than others, or flaunt our accomplishments. We were to serve others. I often wonder where she got that value. Did she get it from her mother? In Canada, we tend to value justice, uh, pleasure, and prosperity over everything else. We despise injustice, suffering, and poverty. We want a society where no one is poor, where no one suffers, and where there is no injustice. We all have rights. Humility, not necessarily a high value. But we're studying the book of Philippians right now, and in the ancient world of Philippi, and this was true throughout the Roman Empire, the pursuit of honor was the highest value. For Greeks, Romans, and Jews, honor was considered to be the ultimate asset or blessing for human beings and shame the ultimate deficit. In their world, a mother was not so concerned about whether or not a child would be happy or make money or live morally, but whether the son or daughter would bring honor to the family. A mother's greatest fear was to be publicly shamed by her children. A son He could bring honor to himself and to his family by participating in a military victory, rising through the official ranks of society, well defined, and by some, great service to the village. Honor was measured in a number of ways one, front seats at festivals, two, burial at public expense. Three, statues made in your honor. Four, free food at state functions. Five, the receipt of special awards. Ancient Greeks, Romans, and Jews, they thought nothing of parading their best accomplishments in public or better still, getting others to praise them in public. Humility was rarely, if ever, considered virtuous. In fact, it carried a negative meaning. It meant a shameful lowering of status. It stig- signified the inability uh, of a man to establish his merit. A humble man was a weak, a defeated, a fearful, an inferior man. So in the Greek and Roman lists of virtue, humility is never mentioned. So how did followers of Jesus, like my mother, learn to value humility? Humility. It did not come through some long process of moral evolution. It was more like a humility revolution. The first text in the history of the Western world on humility can be dated precisely to words written by Paul around 62 AD to disciples of Jesus in the Roman colony of Philippi. And this is it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus.' who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. A paraphrase would be, Adopt this mindset in your church family relationships, Philippi. What mindset is Paul talking about? Well, in the preceding verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul's argument has gone something like this. The unity of the church family is based on the very real encouragement of being united with Jesus. The real experience of his love and the true communion with the Spirit of God. On this foundation in Jesus, Paul urges the church to be of one mind, one affection, one purpose, renouncing any kind of selfish ambition, pride, or partisanship. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, disciples are to consider others as better than themselves and prioritize their interests. This seems so counterintuitive. The renowned American economist Milton Friedman, he's quoted as saying, the world runs on individuals pursuing their self-interests. So Paul, why should we value the interests of others above our own? Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. The verb actually needs to be su- supplied in this sentence, so both readings are possible. If we follow the first reading, which is yours in Christ Jesus, we think of receiving the mind of Christ by virtue of being united with him. Paul writes, but we have the mind of Christ. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. The other reading, which was also in Christ Jesus, emphasizes the example which the Philippians are to follow. Many New Testament passages encourage us to follow the pattern of Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, end of verse 5 and 6. As followers of Jesus, we've been gifted with the mind of Christ. It is actually possible for us to follow the pattern of behavior exemplified by Jesus, because we're a new creation in Jesus, reborn by the Spirit. In other words, we are empowered by the same Spirit that empowered Jesus. Jesus, the supreme example of humble, obedient, and self-sacrificing service, he can be followed by the Philippians and by us. So no matter what, Paul would say, cultivate the mindset of Jesus. The best way to cultivate his mindset is to meditate on his example. How did Jesus live out humility? Three clauses in verses 6 through 8 outline the decisions Jesus consciously made that demonstrate his humility. First one, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Two, he made himself nothing. And three, he humbled himself. Let's begin with the first one. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Before becoming a human being, Jesus was in the form of God. In other words, Jesus was equal with God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 1. Jesus was in the form of God. The word form refers to the true and exact nature of God. Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus, he possessed the essential nature, attributes, and character of God. Having equality with God, the Father, did not lead him to grasp, to hold on to his divine privileges. He did not exploit them for his own advantage. Instead, he counted our interests, the interests of humanity, as more significant than his own. Paul writes in Romans fifteen three. Christ did not live to please himself. Jesus refused to act for his own benefit. Now the second clause, he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, means that Jesus, who had all the divine privileges as creator of all things, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby born in a manger. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, a slave, Form of a servant is a deliberate contrast with form of God. Jesus, the one who had all the rights and privileges, he became a person like us without rights or privileges in order to serve humanity. Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came to be served, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus poured himself out. He gave it all. Jesus' love drove him to a position of weakness for our sake. For you know the grace of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Although fully God, Jesus set aside his advantageous position in order to become fully human and identify with us Fully. The author of Hebrews writes that Jesus became like us in every respect. He took on our form and entered into the complexities of our broken world. While on earth, he did not fight for his own honor, right, or credit. And that was not all. Jesus went much farther. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just death, even death on a cross. You know, we don't feel the impact of the cross in our day because for us it's become an art piece, uh, an ornament, a decoration, even a brand. No one would have used the cross as a decoration or a brand in the first century. Why? Well, crucifixion was the ultimate way to shame someone, the ultimate way for Rome to publicly declare that the, the crucified one was beyond contempt. It was the most degrading form of punishment, reserved for slaves and robbers and political rebels, the lowest of criminals. What happened when a person was crucified? Well, the condemned was usually scourged with a leather strap, embedded with metal and broken pottery, stripped naked, led out to a public place, and then fastened to a cross by impaling, nailing, and then binding with ropes. Death often came slowly over a period of days as the condemned one experienced uh, blood loss, thirst, hunger, the attacks of wild animals, and suffocation. This is how Jesus died. Even conversation about crucifixion was offensive for Jews, Greeks, and Romans. They didn't want to talk about it. The ESV Study Bible writes, the excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. Those crucified were considered accursed, not only by the state, but by the gods. A piece of uh, anti-Christian graffiti was found, uh, found in a guardhouse wall. In Rome, it dates back to the 2nd century A.D. The crude drawing, it shows a crucified man with a donkey's head. Next to the cross stands a man with arms raised in adoration toward the figure of the cross. And below the image, scribbled in Greek, are the words, aleximenus worships his God. The Roman guards were taking perverse pleasure in mocking an imprisoned Christian named aleximenus they were depicting his God as a stupid, mule headed loser. So, in a world that pursued honor and avoided shame at all costs, the early churches, like the church in Philippi, had to really wrestle with the question was Jesus not that great? Or does our concept of greatness require redefinition? They had to come to grips with his execution. Jesus, his life was not a self-focused struggle for supremacy, not a fight for his own interests, but a pouring out of himself for the salvation of humanity. So Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. This mind-blowing reconceptualization of of God demanded a humility revolution. Honor and shame were turned on their heads. In Jesus, God had revealed himself to be self-sacrificing, at his core, dying for the sake of humanity. Honor was redefined. What was shameful became honorable. Now, if the greatest man ever known chose to forgo his status for the good of humanity... Greatness must consist in humble service. As John Dixon writes in his book Humilitus, humility became the noble choice to forgo your status and use your resources or your influence for the good of others rather than for yourself. A few days ago, uh, I went to visit my dad. He's 92, he lives in a retirement village. As I sat with him outside with social distancing, I considered how gracious, kind, unassuming, and humble my dad had become. How did that happen? As I said earlier, my mother passed away last year. For the last ten years of her life, she suffered from Parkinson's and dementia. My father literally poured himself out all his time and energy for my mother. He chose to love her, to care for her, right to the end. His greatest concern was around what he might do for her. He could not do enough for her. Now, this is what I find remarkable. My dad does not think he did anything beyond the expected. He does not talk about what he has done. But humility sure is beautiful. My wife and daughters often ask me, "'Are you going to be like your father?' And I respond, I sure hope so. I hope to follow his good example. Insofar as he emulates the humility of Jesus, I want to be like him. Ultimately, Jesus is our model, our example. Three key thoughts. They need to be remembered. First, humility is not low self-esteem. People of low self-esteem can be as self-centered as the proud. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, a humble person will not be thinking about himself at all. Second, we choose to humble ourselves. It's a voluntary sacrifice. Third, humility, it's not a private affair. It's more about how I treat others than about how I think about myself. It's lived out in loving relationship. So Paul would say, no matter what, Choose to use your time, your energy, and influence for the good of others. A few application questions. How can we ignore self-interest and set aside our rights for the good of others? Are there ways in which we can deny our rights, honor, and credit for the sake of our families? Do we trust God enough to deny self-interest and pour our lives out for the good of others within the church family? We must meditate on Jesus' example and choose to follow. Paul goes on to describe something really important in chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humiliation became the grounds of his exaltation. When Jesus' work on earth was completed, God raised Jesus to life. And he was graciously entrusted with supreme authority over the entire created order. He was not just given a name, but the name that is above every name, Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the earliest confessional formula of the church. What was the purpose of this exaltation? So that every knee should bow and every tongue confess this is a direct allusion to Isaiah 45, where these words ref- refer exclusively to the Lord, Yahweh, the one to whom all people on earth should turn for salvation. Let's read a few words from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no god, other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Those words that come from Isaiah 45 speak prophetically to Jesus. According to Isaiah 45, many will confess gladly. Others will confess out of shame. Paul writes that every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. All created beings, human and angelic, will one day publicly acknowledge his reign over all things. The whole created order will join in worship, all principalities, powers, and people. There's a humorous story that's told about Muhammad Ali, the famous world champion boxer. He was flying across the United States to defend his world heavyweight boxing title. Suddenly, the captain of the airplane announced approaching severe turbulence. Passengers and crew fastened seatbelts immediately. The crew hurried up and down the aisles to make sure that everyone was safe before strapping themselves in. One flight attendant noticed Muhammad Ali in first class with the seatbelt obviously resting on his lap, undone. Excuse me, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt, she requested. Ali looked at her and calmly said, Superman don't need no (laughs) seatbelt. Quick as a flash, he replied, Superman don't need no plane. I imagine Ali smiled. In any case, there is the jarring reality. At 30,000 feet in the air, in the middle of a storm, no human is superhuman. You need the belt, the crew, the pilot, the plane. And above all, you need to trust the one who is Lord over the storm. In the midst of our current COVID-19 storm, the sane response is to own our weakness and need and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. In a sense, we're all flying at 30,000 feet every day, vulnerable, dependent. Do we live acknowledging that Jesus is reigning over all provincial, national, and world powers, over all angels and demons, over the financial system and the social order? This is what we confess when we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. So no matter what, confess Jesus as supreme authority over your entire existence. Jesus' supreme authority over the entire created order is a source of tremendous comfort in our day. Jesus is above all forces working against the good of humanity in this crisis, and he is Lord over forces that seek to undermine the church. He will sovereignly accomplish his purposes in history, and the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And when his kingdom reaches its fullness, Jesus will not keep keep the glory for himself. Even in his exaltation, Jesus will be the example of humble service to the glory of God the Father, as Paul writes. Jesus is the righteous Savior of all who turn to him. He poured himself out on the cross for our salvation, took our sin upon himself, and paid the price we could never pay so that we might be forgiven and become children of God. God raised Jesus from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning over the entire created order. And one day, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord, and every knee will bow. If you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus, now's the time to worship. Now is the time to give your heart. When we come to Jesus, we come just as we are, in our brokenness. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now, then I would ask you to pray with me. Jesus, I believe you died on that cross to pay the price for my sin. Please forgive me for my rebellion, for leading my own life separate from you. I turn from my independence and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. I ask you to set me free from all guilt, shame, and fear. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead and are reigning over all things. Fill me with your Spirit. Lead me from this day forward. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, um, please click on the uh, raise my hand button, and uh, we would love to encourage you in your journey. And now I'd just like to pray a prayer for, for all of us. Father, we just thank you again as your disciples that you sent Jesus We thank you, Jesus, for coming and pouring your your life out on our behalf. And so, Lord, in this moment, we again acknowledge what you have done. And we confess, Lord, that so often we walk in pride. We're self-sufficient. We're independent. And so, Lord, again, we ask for your forgiveness And we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. May we cultivate your mindset, Jesus. You chose to humble yourself, to pour out your life for our benefit. And so may we do that. May we choose to walk in humility, to pour out our lives, to use our time and energy and resources for the good of others. And, Lord, may we every day confess you truly as Lord of our lives as the one who has supreme authority over every area of our lives and may we live surrendered to you, living for your glory, trusting you to do a new thing in our day, trusting you to work in our own lives, in the lives of members of our church family, people that we love, God, to do something beyond anything we could ever imagine. We acknowledge, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing, and so we surrender ourselves to you and ask you for the work, the powerful work of your Holy Spirit in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.